Welcome back to another episode of Rocky Mountain Surgery. This is Allie. And this is Jason. This week we have one of our trauma surgeons, Dr. Eric Peltz. We're going to talk to him about educating specifically on the trauma service, which is quite different from learning on your HPV service or any of your other uh, subspecialty surgery services. Like how do you prepare for something when you don't know what's going to come in the door? Mm-hmm. You, uh, I did eight weeks of the trauma service at Denver Health, and it is quite hard to know what's coming in and preparing for ahead of time. So he had a lot of very helpful tips for residents as preparing for the trauma service. So let's give it a listen now. Welcome back to Rocky Mountain Surgery. Today, we are privileged to be joined by Dr. Eric Peltz, who is the Assistant Director of the Trauma and Acute Care Surgery Division here at the University of Colorado. Dr. Peltz received his DO from Kansas City University of Medicine and Biosciences College of Osteopathic Medicine. He then completed a surgical residency and trauma fellowship training here at the University of Colorado as well. He is widely regarded in our department as one of our many excellent educators, so he has joined us on the RMS pod talk more about surgical training as it pertains specifically to trauma and acute care surgery. Dr. Peltz, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Welcome to the podcast today, Dr. Peltz. You know, we start off this podcast kind of asking everybody, what was your initial path to surgery and becoming a trauma surgeon here? So my initial path to surgery, I actually, you know, after getting into medical school, I knew I wanted to be a physician. And my experience up to that point had been primarily working with emergency medicine doctors. So I was an EMT during college and worked uh, on a BLS ambulance and then an emergency department in Northern Colorado. And so starting med school, I was going to be an ED doc. Um, And it wasn't until, you know, my initial exposure to surgery that I started considering that as a potential career. I actually, as a third year, or excuse me, yeah, third year medical student, I um, had done my clinical rotations in South Jersey through UMDMJ Robert Wood Johnson. And my first surgery rotation was in uh, Jersey City, New Jersey, with a surgeon named Nicholas Demos. Uh, His last name was much longer. It was like Demolopolis. But this, this surgeon, first exposure I ever had to surgery He was in his late 60s. He was general surgery boarded, vascular boarded, and thoracic boarded, and actually gave me his a color photocopy of his original publication describing video-assisted thoracoscopic Nissen fundoplication. He described it and actually helped to develop some of the first Olympus scopes. So, you know, it was amazing what, what experience this gentleman had and uh, it was a one-on-one rotation. I was the only student in his office. Uh, he took me you know, to his office to see clinic patients, and in the corner he had a bunch of bottles for the bare bottle system. Huh. Before he let me put in a chest tube as a third-year medical student, he gave me a bunch of tubing and rubber corks and made me set up a sump suction chest tube system. It, it was just really intriguing. He was really bright, really energetic, and that's kind of where I where I started to think about surgery as as a career. Um, and then working with some additional surgeons and surgical critical care doctors uh, found that not only were they performing procedures, but they were highly educated in medical conditions and 
pathophysiology and they would manage renal failure and run their own dialysis and run their own ventilators. And so for me, it became a just a, a very natural way to be able to combine a lot of really medical, advanced medical therapies and diagnostics with the ability to then do a procedural related uh, specialty where you have a dramatic impact on patient's outcome, whether that's for, for survival with many patients or for palliation. The last comment I'll make that kind of sealed it for me, I, I had done a, a sub-internship in Utah as a fourth-year medical student. I had come through Colorado, and I had been at Denver Health, and I went to Utah, and I remember this lady very clearly. She um, she came in. She had a obstructing metastatic colon cancer, and she was cachectic and just miserable. And her only goal at that point was to live for the next six weeks to watch her youngest daughter graduate from college and then get married. And we provided a palliative procedure. So she knew this is not going to improve her survival or give her, you know, any lifelong cure. But she was so, so grateful. And, um, her entire family, and she were just so grateful that she was going to have the opportunity to make it through the next few weeks uh, for those those big moments in her daughter's life. And so, you know, that's kind of what sealed it for me was that you can just make a dramatic impact on a lot of patients' outcome, whether it's curative or, you know, that kind of a, a palliative uh, gift, really, for them. So a major goal of this podcast, from Allie and my perspective, is to open the eyes of what surgical career is like and that there are several pathways to achieve that. And your pathway is slightly different in that you went the DO path, whereas Allie and I both went the MD path. And we've talked to other mentors and uh, attending here who have done the Caribbean medical school pathway. But can you talk a bit about how the DO path differs from the MD path, if at all? Yeah, I can. And initially, how did I, how did I get there? I, I didn't know what an osteopath was when I was looking to go to medical school. I think like a lot of people, I wanted to be a doctor. And so I had worked with these physicians in the emergency department in Fort Collins. And one of them was an osteopath. And so, you know, in talking with them and asking for letters of recommendation, this this one particular mentor said, absolutely would write me a letter of recommendation. His one requirement was that I apply to his school. And his school happened to be the osteopathic program in Kansas City. And so I started looking into it at that point. Um, didn't know what an osteopath was, didn't know what it meant. I just, I want to be a doctor. And so, you know, he was a doctor and everyone that worked with him was a doctor. I didn't even know they were different. When I started looking into it, you know, a lot of the uh, the philosophy I, I liked, which, you know, osteopathic medicine originated when you know, the best medications you were giving at the time were quinine and mercury. And patients were, if you didn't die from your condition, then you would die from the treatment tailored to it. In the pan epidemic of swine flu, osteopathic physicians were actually having, you know, significantly better survivals than allopathic because they were providing, you know, they they would give them names, these osteopathic procedural names like rib raises and things what it really ends up being is chest physiotherapy. Like we use it in our practice every day here. Some of those things originated with osteopathic medicine, which were 
deep breathing and coughing, uh, percussive therapy, expectorating sputum, rather than giving quinine. And so originally it started with that, which was, you know, they would look at what the physiology was and how to better improve patients, a patient's own immune system or ability to, to clear disease. The lines have really, I think, blurred from those early origins uh, to now. Early on, osteopathic physicians didn't have prescriptive authority. Uh, it was very different until really a lot of Vietnam and Korea. Osteopathic physicians made up a significant portion of the military physicians and surgeons and then gained prescriptive authority. The academic curriculum or the didactics for medical school are really no different. Um, it's the same, you know, anatomy, physiology, biochemistry, pharmacology, with a little bit different, you know, focus from the origins, which is, you know, looking at, at the anatomy, how it can become deranged, leading to disease. So, you know, cardiovascular, here's what normal is. Here's atherosclerosis. Here's how it precipitates disease. Mm -hmm. What are the multiple ways we can affect that? Some of them are medical, some are surgical, some are exercise and rehabilitation. So that's kind of how I started to look at it. And then when I interviewed, I just really liked the program. They were, the students I met were very bright. The The physicians were, were very accomplished. And so I actually, I had interviewed at Tufts and I interviewed at Dartmouth and BU and two DO schools, uh, one in Maine and one in Kansas City. And I was waitlisted at all of the allopathic programs. And there was this, this understanding that um, while I had great scores and, and good interviews, most students matriculating to those programs had applied at least two or three years in a row. And so, you know, for a number of reasons then with, you know, the philosophy and that I liked the school, I chose the osteopathic uh, route. How is it different from that point on? Um, I am, to my knowledge, I'm the first osteopathic resident in the surgical residency here at University of Colorado. Uh, I believe I am the first osteopathic surgeon within the Department of General Surgery and certainly Geitz. And so, you know, east of the Mississippi, um, programs actually have both allopathic and osteopathic arms. UMDMJ Robert Wood Johnson has an allopathic arm. And then in Stratford, New Jersey, they have an osteopathic school. And so, you know, back east, when I was on rotations, you know, we were rotating uh, MDs and DOs side by side as medical students. Residents that trained us were indistinguishable. Uh, it's really west of the Mississippi that uh, it's not quite as well established. And so, you know, doing residency and training here, there were a lot of firsts uh, to get into the program. Um, was a significant accomplishment for me to to successfully complete residency and then be invited to stay on or accepted to stay on as a trauma and acute care fellow. And then again, as faculty. So it, it was a little bit more difficult um, to negotiate that where I think there's a lot of other programs where simply because you're more established and there's a little longer history of osteopaths, it's very difficult to distinguish between, between the two training programs. 
So our previous episode was about teaching in the operating room and teaching residents in general. And it's obviously somewhat different in the trauma and acute care setting because residents don't have the luxury of reading about the cases the night before. There's obviously a need for speed and precision in trauma. So how, how do you approach balancing the need to treat patients aggressively and rapidly, but also maintaining the the educational opportunities for residents and how do you approach that so you know i think there's there's two parts to that question you know the way practice has developed there's there's trauma and then there's acute care surgery or emergency general surgery while there's similarities between the two i I think the approach is a bit different if we if we take trauma uh first I, i think you're exactly right things there is there's an efficiency of motion and a, a critical need to make expeditious decisions, uh, intervene on people in a very timely fashion. Otherwise, uh, mortality is exceptionally high. You have to move very quickly. You have to make you know definitive decisions that that are well founded. And so, from a trauma perspective, you know, as far as an educational approach, I think one of the things that impacted me most through my training was seeing a few surgeons that could really remain calm uh, in those chaotic situations. And it always impressed me how by taking a step back, trying to remain calm and trying to, you know, very methodically and sequentially go through things, it was easier to address those, any, any life-threatening injuries that would come in. Um, I think we've, we've worked in, all of us have worked in chaotic situations where sometimes that doesn't go optimally. And so, one of the first things I've tried to do in my own career, both through residency training and as a faculty surgeon, is while things have to be done quickly, you need to remain calm, uh, very thoughtful, very methodical, and and it prevents you from missing you know important things. The easiest approach, I think, gen- the easiest general approach to trauma, when you first meet the patient, you know you follow well-established algorithms like. Uh, ATLS. And so you always start with airway. There are always several things that are the most life-threatening within the first minutes of meeting a patient. Um, You address those first. It allows you to go through things very methodically and then start considering, okay, what's my next biggest priority? That's probably the one thing I would, I think is probably most important to impart to surgical residents is to find a way to, you know, remain calm and and really kind of see the forest for the trees. It's really easy to get focused in on procedures if it's your first time, uh, whether that's as simple as a central line or or placing a pelvic binder or doing resuscitative thoracotomy. But by becoming so tremendously focused on that one procedure or that one aspect, it's you lose track of all of the other components that are equally as critical. Does the patient have an airway established are blood products being transfused? Yes, I'm about to do a major invasive procedure, but if those aren't also being done, then my procedure isn't really going to have a good outcome. And so I think that's probably the one most critical thing I could impart to residents in training in any trauma situation is to try to remain very calm, very methodical, really good communication with your team members because it would be impossible to manage any of those patients independently. You have to rely on a team approach but it must be coordinated when 
when things become chaotic, it's too easy for every individual to get focused on on their component. And you you may have six people moving in six, six different directions. So I think from the trauma perspective, like the first initial approach to the patient, that's what I would say the most important is. How do you teach how do you teach the other parts of trauma care? There's a lot of you know, operative life-threatening injuries. Gene Moore uh, has been my mentor throughout my entire residency fellowship and then as as faculty. And he has described what what is, you know, in practice is the master surgeon. I've heard him describe this and really I think what it equates to is what general surgery was 30 years ago. So prior to the super specialization of all these different surgical practices, you would have one surgeon that was on for your hospital, and if you had a trauma, then they would address that. During their daytime job, they would address vascular surgery and thoracic surgery and endocrine surgery and head and neck procedures. And so, you know, the development of this new specialty model of trauma and acute care surgery, I think, tries to train a resident to that, which is that uh, you have advanced training experience in all of those different aspects. You may not be the master of every one, but that you can control and temporize essentially everything. That's the goal. Um, you know who to call when you need help, but it's a little bit hard to train in, in general surgery or to have an expectation that the resident will know how to do all of those components. What you want you know, the resident to learn is control bleeding, arrest contamination, resuscitate the patient, you know, take a step back and, and rather than try to solve every single problem, find out how to temporize so that you have a moment to think and consider what the best next course is. I think, you know, that's that's the most basic answer I can give for a trauma scenario. The emergency general surgery, actually, I think you have a bit more time. You know, even in, even in the setting of perforation of uh, a bowel, or septic shock or a necrotizing soft tissue infection, it's often not seconds or minutes until the patient will you know, succumb like it is with an aortic rupture. So you have a minute to think about you know, the approach and again, trying to remain calm and very methodical, counseling residents on you know, how can we best set ourselves up for success with an operation. And oftentimes it's not rushing to the OR. It's, you know, we need to get to the ICU. We need to resuscitate first. I don't really need any more x-rays because they have peritonitis. I just need to anticipate what the potential, you know, emergency general surgery problem could be. And then, you know, find a way to best uh, address it. I, I actually find it, I really like that aspect of my job where, you know, every day it could be something new. You could have a vascular trauma or thoracic trauma an emergency general surgery abdominal case or major soft tissue cases. Um, and it provides, it provides a, a tremendous balance to, you know, the patient population that I meet, what we're able to do. And I think, you know, trying to, to maintain some of that, that breadth of your initial approach to things. You don't need to know every single maneuver. I heard it described from one of my mentors, a Whipple is seven procedures, and you do one of them all the time. It's an anastomosis. It may be a little smaller, but it's an anastomosis. Don't make it more than what it is. 
So trying to break things down into those common components, dissection is exposure, control. It doesn't matter what type of case you're doing. You, you learn to set up the retractor correctly, expose things so that you can actually have good visualization, get clean tissue margins. That's no different really in any case. And so breaking things down into the commonalities, you can put a lot more procedures, I think, together in your repertoire. Going back to what you were talking about with traumas um, and getting there, going through the algorithm that you have been taught, whether it's ATLS and trauma or ACLS and a code situation, whatever it is, and trying to remain calm and focus on the steps that you need to do to save this patient. I, I think that saying that remaining that you need to remain calm is one thing, but then if you are a junior resident coming into this, um, how do you learn those skills? How do you remain calm? Do you believe in simulation? Is it, you know, going to every trauma as an intern so you can pick up as much as you can? How, how do I get to be like that when I'm a chief resident? Yeah, no, that's, that's a great, that's a great question. And that's a great comment. You're right. You, you don't walk into the first aortic rupture, calm and serene and composed and everything's very sequential. I can I can say like I remember my first um, subclavian central line. It was terrifying. That felt like chaos for me, and it was an IV catheter in a floor patient who was very stable and cooperative. But when I remember the procedure, there were a number of components, and I set up my process. I still use the same process. I put my tray out the exact same way. I have the same type of gauze. I have the same prep. Everything is very regimented the way I have set it up so that it allows me to be more comfortable with my procedure. So how do I do it for junior residents? Um, I think you're exactly right in that as you first come into a trauma, you know, as even an intern or a two, if you at that point are given some of the, the tasks or the components of the trauma care, Focusing in on on your portion, remaining very regimented, very structured about your approach, you will start to expand upon that. And so you may be in charge of you know drawing the arterial blood gas and placing an A line. That is critical to that patient's course and outcome. And for you as the intern or two, it will be stressful and chaotic the first time. The second time it's easier. The third time, as you're doing it, you're also thinking you know. The airway is going in and I'm drawing the blood and I see blood hanging. You start to, you know, you start to assemble all of these different components over the course of your five years of training or five years of clinical training to where, you know, as you become more senior and you've become more experienced with some of those components of the care, some of the procedural aspects, then I try to have my senior residents step back next to me near the foot of the bed to help oversee. And you can watch all of the components. You can watch the junior residents, you know, establishing a line while a senior resident's intubating. And you're keeping track of all of these simultaneous aspects of what, you know, ATLS is, you know, a list of items that are happening simultaneously. So I, as you gain more experience, you start to accumulate the comfort level with each of those aspects. But you're exactly right. I think the first few times it, it, there's a, a little bit of an adrenaline surge 
and a nervousness and and maybe uncertainty or you know you may not be have an established level of comfort but building upon that over the course of five years of training you start to accumulate each of those aspects to where it's easier to step back I, I remember you know seeing my mentors Gene Moore or Dr. Clay Cawthorn Berlou we would be in cases and you know even as a as a fellow they were pretty terrifying for me like there was an aortic rupture and like it let loose and there was no visualization and you there's a threat of becoming paralyzed in that situation because of the the level of stress the the stakes at at risk and those attending surgeons because they had gone through this and they remained very sequential and they you know helped to talk themselves you know into a calm state you know gain control very quickly but i think that those are the things you accumulate over the 5 year course so i you know the attendings expectations and and support for the resident i think play a tremendous role in it you know try to try to train and teach people to their skill set make sure you know you're applying you know procedures for each of them for the intern the two the three that will challenge them but not overwhelm. So I think that would be my suggestion. At least it seems retrospectively, maybe that's how I accumulated some of these. You know, I, I can only hope to be as good as the people that train me someday. Um, so, you know, I, I still have to remind myself of all of these things at times in some of those most strenuous or stressful trauma situations. Yeah. I remember one of the first cases I had where the patient was critically ill and you were kind of the first person on scene, so to speak. Uh, I really felt the magnitude of the situation kind of wash over me where suddenly you're the one up to the plate. There's no one else around and you're the one making the critical decisions. And that had a profound effect on me that I had not anticipated because so much of our experiences during the daytime where there's a lot of safety nets to back you up that you can rely on. And that's there 99% of the time. And it really was there in that situation as well. But so that was a new experience. And uh, I certainly appreciate what you're saying. I'm sure a lot of it just has to do with being present repeatedly. And you eventually develop these algorithms or these protocols that you walk through that make it that much easier. Well, and I I think after those cases, like, you know, the ones that you remember, um, stopping to ask your senior resident, you know, what their perception of it was, how did it go? What could have been done better? What went really well? Um, and over the course of five years, you can start trying to put a lot of those really wells together and and potentially avoid some of the, the cases that may have gone, you know, could have gone better. Um, I still have those where, you know, the, the patient is critically ill or you have multiple patients at the same time and there's a lot of people trying to help and, and it's just not as organized as you would like. And, you know, remembering those cases that went well and playing up on those while trying to avoid some of the pitfalls you may have experienced, I think that's how you gain experience over the course of residency and training that you can then use when you start directing these cases yourself. One of the things that I think is exciting but also challenging about trauma is you have no idea what is going to come through that door, and it could be one of a million different things and multiples of those combined at the same time. So... Knowing that, I don't think that there's a way in residency or in surgical education that you can have 
an experience that will prepare you for everything that's coming at you. And some of the stuff that you alluded to, talking about a Whipple and breaking it into its key components, kind of talks about that. Like, yes, this may be something you've never seen before, but in the end, you're going to have the tools to be prepared to do that. So my question for you is, what do you think about incorporating simulated scenarios or something like that, like sending residents to certain trauma preparedness course? Do you think that that helps in terms of our ability to truly lead a trauma team and take care of a trauma patient as an attending? Yeah, I I absolutely do. There's there's a there's an approach to medical education in general or surgical education specifically that's called contiguous education. Um, it's the very fancy terminology for see one, do one, teach one. Like we've all heard that, right? See it the first time and then do it and then teach it. It's contiguous education is where you do a specific type of procedure repetitively and you start to build muscle memory and neurologic patterns. And so there are those things that you're right. You won't see um, with consistency through residency. You may see the lower extremity vascular injury, but it will be intermittent and it's at different points in your training where your own your own perception as an intern versus a four is very different. And so the components that you can establish um, outside of the clinical setting are trauma labs, the Adams course, the asset course, other simulated training models where you know you you go through a mock trauma, where does everyone stand? That establishes some comfort with knowing how many people are in the room and what are my capabilities. Knowing where all of the equipment is establishes some level of comfort. Knowing where the popliteal artery is and how you're going to expose it. So if you've not done it, then you can either wait until the injury happens and see it for the first time. That's your C1, but you may not do one then for another couple years. Or you can establish some of those first exposures and experience in the simulation labs or some of the human cadaver courses. Uh, I think that that would be tremendously beneficial for all residents in training, just as far as establishing a foundational comfort level with at least knowing, well, what's my approach? How will I gain control? I've done a mock trauma. I know that I have these capabilities in the room. And now I have an injury, and this is how I would get to it. Um, for the first one you see, I think you, you'll gain so much more from that experience in the clinical setting if you've already established a bit of a foundation in those simulations or those lab models. I've just got to give a shout out to WashU when Jason and I were just at Surgical Education Week in the program director's meeting a couple of weeks ago. They basically created this course where the senior residents, there are two pigs, it's a pig lab, there are two senior residents, one for each team, and they create a protocoled series of injuries in these pigs. And then the junior residents, literally the ones and the twos, are there exploring the abdomen of these pigs and basically diagnosing the injury and then fixing the injury at least in a damage control type of model, I would say. And I was very jealous of that because I think that that is a wonderful idea and gives people at least some amount of comfort at the very junior level going into something like that. Yeah, and I think another another great example of this exact idea of 
of focused training, whether it's in simulation or models. Um, the trauma and acute care surgery fellowship that I have um, gone through here at University of Colorado was established with this same type of idea, which is that even after five years of general surgery residency training, the, the surgeons that established this program said, what did it take us the first 10 years of practice to really see enough of to get comfortable? And that was vascular, thoracic, airway, some hepatobiliary and specifically retrohepatic cable type injuries. Hmm. Even as an attending, you don't see them enough to become super comfortable with that. And so, you know, I did three months of vascular surgery as a vascular fellow and had 120 elective cases. Every one of those elective cases, you're establishing a routine for exposure of the carotid, exposure of the celiac trunk, exposure of the retrohepatic aorta. And so even building upon that five years of training, this extended, you know, postgraduate fellowship is that same type of idea, which is that three months, my comfort level improved dramatically compared to the day after graduation. Thoracic surgery and, and managing, you know, airway trauma, same type of a thing. Uh, in 10 years, a trauma surgeon may see a few airway injuries, but on a very busy thoracic surgery service with upper airway specialty, I saw multiple cases and participated in them and did resections and tracheal anastomosis several times over three months. And so you know, I have partners that have um, done different training models. And I think our comfort levels are very different because of that established foundation. For the resident, I think you can apply that same, that same kind of model as you're suggesting at WashU where pig labs, uh, simulation models, get exposure, get your hands on tissue, start to develop you know, an understanding of what your approach would be you'll identify you know, easier and harder ways to do things that when you do see the injury for the first time are going to help make that educational experience much more meaningful. So as I mentioned at the intro, you did residency and fellowship here and are obviously a faculty here now as well. And so you're in somewhat of a unique position to comment on how residency has evolved over these last few years. So what have been some major changes you've noticed in how have they affected residency either for the, the better or worse? So I think one of the major changes over my training, uh, and without getting into specific politics of work hour restrictions or a lot of the, the changes that I really do think have, have benefited residency training today, one of the things I feel that I may have had the opportunity for was a lot more continuity. Now, that may have meant you know, several days straight in the hospital, which has its downside, which is why we've evolved to where we have. But the continuity of exposure to patients, I think, was different for sure. I, I would see a patient in the ER and we would take them to the OR for the first time. And then we would be on call that night and they would have a decompensation and we would take them back to the OR. And so in that model where you're uh, available at the bedside for extended periods of time, you see the the natural history and clinical course of a lot of patients. I think one of the changes um, in today's training model that I've noticed with residents is while you may have done a very complex hepatobiliary surgery, if the patient has a complication or goes back to the OR for 
bleeding that night, you've not experienced the reoperative intervention or or put together what the clinical parameters were that prompted reoperation. It's a little bit harder to learn in those silos. You may learn the procedure, but then have you seen them in that continuity all the way through as the primary surgeon? I think it's more often that one of your partners, one of your colleagues is on that night, and then maybe someone else is on the next day and you may have a different role. And so, you know, trying one of the challenges I think today that I see in residence is trying to help residents understand what the continuity of a disease process is. Um, one, you know, one of the cases that comes to mind, Dr. Mark Naylor did what's called a Claggett procedure, which is reconstruct and build an aorta out of superficial femoral vein. And I remember the case was about 20, 20 some hours long, almost 20 hours in the OR. And, you know, you take breaks and we would go have dinner and then come back and you keep working. And, and I remember the patient had a very complicated course and my chief resident and I were there post-op and we got some rest, but we were still there and had to go back to the OR and we did a reoperation and we saw what, you know, this is where the tie came off. This is where we may have been able to improve things the first time around. There is a, a direct learning experience from being there and seeing what worked and what didn't, mm-hmm. where I think, you know, if if you're off or you're on a different rotation or have a different role, you lose some of that that experience and it's more difficult to anticipate than when you're as faculty and you do a big case. Are you anticipating every potential, you know, complication or clinical course that may come up? You just haven't seen them all put together in, in one setting. So I think that's probably been the one of the most um, essential changes or differences I've I've seen over the course of training. Uh, I think that the simulation models, we didn't have simulation models. Now, if you're in the hospital all the time, you're doing stuff all the time. So <laughs> the case numbers were the case numbers were large. Um, our our experience as far as um, being able to second and third and even fourth scrub because there's a lot of people around because no one went home. So you see a lot of things, even if you're not the primary person doing it. Um, you know, there's there's downsides to that model, and I think that we've appropriately evolved. But the new challenge is how do we augment your learning? I think simulation, anatomic labs, whether it's animal models or cadaver models, um, didactic training, some of those specialty courses to try to provide you, like like we had talked about, at least some of that initial exposure and understanding comfort level so that when you do then see it clinically, you can benefit the most. Um, I got to see everything as a disease process and watched other people take care of it before I ever got the chance to take care of it myself because we were here. I think we can substitute you know, other models to, to gain exposure for you guys so that it's meaningful then when you are in the position to be the operative surgeon you've seen it at least once or twice, even if it was simulation or cadaver. And so you, you develop a foundational understanding. And so I think those are the challenges. It's how to supplement some of that, you know, extended exposure that we had uh, with really focused education. One of the other questions I have about changes to the training and evaluation paradigm is kind of this whole new idea about 
immediate feedback, and a lot of that has been app-based. I know that here we've taken up something called Simple. We talked briefly with Dr. McCarter about this, but what do you think about feedback apps being used within surgery training? Do you think that they're useful? Do you think that the people who are giving good feedback on the apps are probably the people who give good immediate feedback in the operating room anyway? That's my personal bias leading you in that question. What do you think? I think that one of the things that is most one of the things that's most critical about feedback is that you know the person providing it needs to have some experience with knowing how to provide some constructive feedback. The individual receiving feedback should have some experience or education in understanding that you know receiving uh, critical feedback may not be personal, but meant to help help to educate you or to prepare you for the next course. I think that, you know, really um, critical feedback is the most difficult to both give and receive. Some of the best feedback I've ever received is, wow, you did that completely wrong. And it's crushing, right? But the next part is, okay, well, after we're done, can you tell me how I should have approached that or how I should have done that different? And so, you know, both for the learner and the educator, I think that you have to enter that situation with an active role, understanding that if I'm not getting good feedback, I should find an appropriate time to ask for it to see if I can learn the most I can from a situation. Um, you know, I've used Dr. Naylor as a previous example. I remember some inadvertent hemorrhage during an open abdominal aortic replacement. And I remember, you know, very, very direct, short feedback. And it was, wow, that was wrong. Yep, it was. And there's no time to learn additional or stop and have a discussion. But after the case, then sitting down and saying, okay, this is the the way that you can expose. This is the way you can position your body. This is the way you can, you know, do that or, or attempt to do things differently next time. Um, I still remember that very case, and I think about it every time I'm operating deep in the abdomen and I'm next to renal veins and you know other critical structures. That's part of resonant education is that as you're given more, more um, opportunity to do some of those critical procedures, you're not going to be perfect. Uh, I think as the academic surgeon, our job is to to help you to be safe and to help try to direct the case as carefully as we can understanding that you're not going to get it perfect every time. And sometimes there's not the opportunity to stop and provide a lot of extensive discussion. So I ask my residents, you know, if I don't give you enough feedback immediately, like ask me, what could I have done different? Um, and sometimes it may be, don't ever do that again. Like that may be the feedback. Do I think things like the simple app help? I think it's a, it's a really good reminder. I use it. I actually, I like it. Because it, it reminds me that even on the easy cases that I may not have, you know, thought a great deal about, well, what could you do different? It provides me a chance to, to challenge the resident to say, you know what, you're a third year resident and pretty autonomously took out the appendix, but this is how you could be better. And, and not just better than you today, but better than me or my partners or my mentors. These are the things that I observe that, you know, you should think about next time and you can apply them to 
your laparoscopic Coley or your laparoscopic Nissen or your next procedure. So I, I think those apps are, they're a great reminder um, for me to provide that feedback and try to give something constructive. Um, I, I, I can say that, you know, feedback is not always easy for the learning learner to receive because it's, our job is to make you an effective, safe, um, confident surgeon. And sometimes that requires us to be critical of, you know, performance. And so, you know, having that understanding as the learner, I think is also crucial to the role. All right. Before we wrap up, I have one more question. So you, as you mentioned, see a wide array of cases. I'm just curious, do you have a favorite? Um, I don't know that I have a favorite. I love vascular cases. Um, I think they're, they're technically very challenging. Uh, there is, there is that immediate feedback. It either worked or it didn't. I really like that aspect and I, I like it in the trauma population because many of these patients don't have the multitude of comorbidities where, you know, if you, if you can do a good vascular salvage, they're going to be, you know, have the best potential to be highly functional. I like that. I, I love hepatobiliary, acute care surgery and trauma. I've had trauma whipples. I was I I've had, had my money on trauma whipples. I've definitely. had I've had some really complex infrahepatic cava, duodenal, multiple injuries. You know, with with renal trauma. I like those complex cases. Uh, they require a great deal of focus, a great deal of precision and technical skill. And and I think if if you can. Again, you know, kind of remain calm about it, sometimes even separate it out into a damage control two or even three operation procedure. You can achieve really nice outcomes. So it's hard to say that I, I have a favorite. I think you just listed every type of I was going to say, if you like everything, do out, trauma surgery. I left out thoracic. You know, trauma and acute care surgery for me, and we didn't, you know, this is like interjecting at the end. This is the my own plug. You know, we didn't talk about, well, how would you decide to do that? I... It was really hard for me to focus. Maybe I, I have a lack of focus, but I love vascular and I love hepatobiliary and colorectal. But then you also have thoracic and head and neck. And, you know, really it's it's kind of, again, describing maybe general surgery 30 years ago. The two places that I found that I do believe you can do specialty training and still maintain a practice in those areas, adult trauma and acute care surgery and pediatric surgery. Those are two areas where I found that similarity, where you can main, maintain a practice in a breadth of surgical disciplines. Uh, one of my favorite parts about it, I have expert partners in all of those specialties, and I know exactly when to call them and and have done so. It's It's an opportunity for me to continue to learn. So when they come in and assist me, it's that next opportunity for me to learn how to get through that case as the faculty attending when there's six different injuries, you know, competing with one another. The next time around, I may not need to call in additional support or I may be the support for one of my partners. So, you know, there's a lot of support when you're still, when you're practicing these disciplines. So the super specialized surgical training that there is now, there's a lot of experts that 
are in those areas every single day. And as a trauma surgeon, you know, we can learn a lot from them, uh, even ongoing in practice. And, and it will make us better for the next case that comes in. I think you just perfectly explained the beauty of working at a coordinated care center like the University of Colorado. Dr. Peltz, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. This was a great discussion. Well, thank you for having me. I, I enjoyed this. Now, before we go, a heads up that we will be posting a survey in the coming weeks that we hope all our listeners will take five minutes to fill out. The survey is part of our hope to do our best to explain what a career in surgery is really like, and understanding who our audience is will help us achieve that goal. We'll put the survey link in the show notes in our upcoming episodes, as well as post a link on our Twitter feed. So please follow us on Twitter at RMSPod. We are working on several tip sheets as well that are especially pertinent for our medical student listeners and will provide pointers such as how to find and have success on away rotations, tips for interviewing and writing personal statements, and how to be successful in your surgical clerkship. We'll have more details soon to keep an eye on on the RMS Pod Twitter feed. If you have any questions or suggestions for upcoming topics, you can email us at rmspodcasts at outlook.com. Well, that wraps up another week of Rocky Mountain Surgery. Thanks everyone for listening. <laughs>